This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to The Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 6, The Parliament of Dreams. I'm thinking of thinking of calling her right after my afternoon nap. I'm thinking of thinking of sending her flowers right after Bonnie gets back. So many fishies left in the sea. So many fishies, but no one for me. I'm thinking of thinking of hooking a love soon after supper. Is done. Welcome back, everybody, listeners old and we hope new to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 as we continue our trek through one of television's greatest science fiction shows ever. I thought we already did that joke. We can't call it a trek. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> as Chip pointed out last episode, he thought that the Parliament of Dreams might be a very good jumping on point for anybody who has just heard about our podcast, but maybe didn't have the time to go back and start with episode one, because as we've begun talking about what you need to know for certain episodes, this one, very light. Babylon 5 has been operating for two years. We have a variety of races represented on this big space station that acts like a United Nations. The Mimbari, the Centauri, and the Narn all prominently feature. Um, This is the first episode to show a broad view that includes most of the cast. Almost every recurring cast member gets an appearance in here except for a couple. So you get to meet a great many of the actors all at once. This is also the first episode that was written after filming had begun. Uh, Hat tip to bed on our website for pointing out that little nugget. So this is an episode where J. Michael Straczynski had had a chance to start seeing what the actors were doing with his words and was able to start tailoring things to fit. In this particular episode, the Earth Central has suggested to celebrate the second anniversary with a festival where the various races are invited to share their religious customs and beliefs. This supports one of the purposes of the station to get all of the races learning about one another in a peaceful situation. We also have Jakar, who finds out he has been targeted for assassination in retribution for ruining another family's political standing. And an old flame of Sinclair's comes on board. So, as we mentioned last week, this is one of my favorite episodes, and I know Chip really likes it as well. Erica, you said you weren't quite as, or you just didn't remember anything in particular about it. Can I start with you? Yeah, go ahead. I, You're right. I was not exactly looking forward to this one. And I, after rewatching it, I realized, no, I, I do like this episode. It's just that there are parts of it that I really don't like. And those parts have sort of left such a sour taste in my mouth that that's all that I kind of remember when I think back to it. So in watching it, I recognize there are lots and lots of parts of this that I really, really enjoy. And I think from here on in, I'm going to try to remind myself of what those were so I can remember them. I, 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 I love Jakar. I, I love mm-hmm. his his whole little story in this. And even more than I love Jakar, I love Natas. Um, yes. I think that she has just a fantastic entrance in this episode. And even more than I love Natoth, I love Natoth and Jakar 
the way that they interact with each other, him being wary of her at first, and then, you know, by the end, they're paling around and walking off in arm in arm. And it's just, oh, she's wonderful. And I'll, maybe I'll say more about her later. I, I liked I liked all of that. What I didn't like was the religion aspect. There are, you know, a lot of people say, be wary of talking about politics and religion. And those are truly my two least favorite things to talk about. And I recognize that it's, it's you know, kind of cool of JMS to have a show that takes religion into account because it's, it's part of the world and probably still will be part of the world by the time this era rolls around. But for me, it is just not something that floats my boat. So it was, I just kind of found myself wanting to tune out for all of those bits. And then I got really, really angry at the very end when Sinclair does his bit about Earth. So that was why it left such a sour taste in my mouth. I felt like that was very unfair to the other races who were who had to bring out their dominant religion, and he brings out dozens and dozens. It's that little Earth-centric kind of thing that just, it's upsetting to me. Okay. So I'm hearing something of the infection syndrome, where one part of it drags it down. Uh, Chip, what about you? Well, that's it's, it's a take that I had never really thought about before, Erica. Um, I love this episode to bits, top to bottom. I always noticed that the choice of the writer to sort of give the other alien races a more monolithic religious structure than um, Earth's. So I can see a little bit of rah rah on the on the writers uh, for the writers on the writer's stance here. So I can see where you're However, coming from from that. The thing is, actually, there was a pretty interesting discussion on our spoiler comment section about that, the monolithic religions. And in rewatching the episode, I realized that at least if we're just looking at this this episode here, it doesn't necessarily show us that these other planets have monolithic religious structures. I mean, we're, we're definitely shown that there are tons of different gods in the Centauri religion. And it's very clearly stated that these planets have to pick their dominant religion. So it's implied to me almost that there could be many other religions that are scattered about these planets. Um, so I, I just feel like they, they had to choose one and show one ceremony. And here, here we parade in, you know, as many as we want. So I just I found that a little bit, a little bit upsetting, kind of in the same way I found the Marilyn Monroe speech upsetting. Okay. Okay. That's a point of view that I have to sort of work to wrap my brain around. Um, it's it's not a point of view that I have when I on, on either one of these. Um, so I'm not trying to dismiss it. It's just that mm. it's uh, it, it's a little foreign to my way of thinking. And I'm not saying that that is at all the way that JMS intended it. I think perhaps he did intend them to be monolithic structures on the other side. I just don't think that that was made clear enough. And it yeah it it was a little a little maybe itchy. Made me itchy. Yeah. That bit works for me so well because it implies, if I, if I just take an Earth-centric viewpoint, it implies a recognition of, if not that, we've reached this wonderful Star Trek The Next Generation point of everybody being all happy and harmonious and nobody needs money and nobody has a religious affiliation or anything like that. It implies that... Earth has at least gotten to the point, or Sinclair has gotten to the point, where there's not a superiority complex of one uh, religion against another. Although JMS, a noted atheist, uh, made <laughs> damn sure that the atheist was the first in line. Um, yeah, I, I did like that. I'll, I'll give him points for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but aside from that, I love everything about this episode to 
bits. Um, the religion thing is just sort of background for me to the spectacular character studies that we get of just about everybody involved from top to bottom, from Susan letting her hair down for the first time that we see, really see in this series, just uh, whooping mm-hmm. it up. The only person other th- that's not a Centauri who's comfortable at that table during the <laughs> Centauri celebration, to Jakar just fully leaping out of the stock villain role, to a very believable, and this is the first time I'd seen this in a while and, and really paid attention to it, a very believable and almost poignant um romantic relationship between uh, Sinclair and Catherine. This this is this is one of my favorites. Okay. Before we get into the other things, listening to the back and forth about the storyline with the religions, what struck me more than anything else was that whether JMS meant to show planets with monolithic religions or not, the fact that the religions tend to show us more about the races. For me, it was more about the races. We see just how wide open and kind of living in the past that the Centauri are. The fact that they still celebrate centuries, millennia later, the fact that they wiped out the other race that was on their planet. And again, they're portrayed as buffoonish and comical. And you have uh, Londo's absolutely magnificent scene. Everybody's cute, but in purple, I'm stunning. Um, We get the broad comedy that we've been led to sort of look at the Centauri in that light. We have the Mimbari shown. So far, they've been kind of mysterious, um, mostly through Delenn's character. And now we see a bit more of the idea of how devout they are and how devoted uh, and reverent they are to Valen, that they worship. And then we get the idea that, that Earth is diversity encompassed. More than anything else, it's the perfect example of, as Chip said, every single religion has a place. There's no dominant one. And that is something that we will see sort of carried through the idea of that the Earthers and their diversity is a strength. So I wanted to mention that as well in this episode, not with the religion, but the Narn shown to be pretty darn vicious in their politicking. If assassination is a regular thing to the point where there's an assassin's guild and they have rituals that they do as they go to assassinate their victims. And the Vorlons are apparently above it all since we don't see a single one. So, Oh, that's right. I hadn't yeah. even thought about that. Where's <laughs> Ambassador Kosh? <laughs> where indeed... Spoiler space, spoiler space, spoiler space. Yeah. So for, for me, that's one of the reasons this episode works is because for me, the religions are a mechanic for learning more about the personalities and the races. As Chip said, it, everybody gets a good line or everybody gets a good scene in this. And yeah, that's true. That yeah. is that is what I, I liked about it. I, I just wanted to point out my other favorite Londo line from that. And I will admit that while the religious parts of it were not my my thing, I would love to have attended that uh, that party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that looked like just so much fun. I just want to yes. sit next to Ivanova and uh, and watch Londo go. But when he's talking about uh, about the different gods, this is the god of the underworld and protector of front doors. Yes, mm-hmm. like what? I love yeah. it. Yes. And yeah, that was great. And th- that's great. And it also really does highlight more about the Centauri culture. You know, we've been seeing how decadent they are already. But in this case, they're not even to the point with the diversity, the seriousness, the religions being diverse but taken seriously on the Earth side. The Centauri 
religion, it's all for show. God of doorsteps. Gods by the bushels. You know, the, <laughs> the, the Centauri all, almost believe in nothing if, if, you Although, take, if you take this scene literally. And that makes them seem kind of hollow. It also makes me wonder, though, if they have gods by the bushel, there are probably lots of them. And, and I right. have to suspect that Londo picked the ones that he, that were the, you know, wine, women and song types of <laughs> gods to have this party. So there there could be other sects somewhere on on Centauri Prime that are you know, very ascetic and noble and, and doing completely different things. But we don't get to see it because Londo happens to be the ambassador that's in charge of planning the gig. <laughs> Good point. Yep. What if Veer had been the ambassador and he He'd planned it. <laughs> Awkward. Very different. As Chip was starting to mention, um, one of the B stories of this is Sinclair's, can't really call her a girlfriend. Apparently, they've been on again, off again, on again, off again for quite a while. But we meet Catherine Sakai. Yeah. And uh, she's a character who is Carolyn Sykes is the former love interest for Sinclair. Catherine Sakai is the new one. And JMS Online would mention a, a couple of times that this relationship was born out of a fair bit of personal experience on his part. He wouldn't go into a whole lot of detail, and I'm not sure I'd want to after this episode. But for all of the fair criticisms of Michael O'Hare's performance, I thought he and Julia Nixon, who plays Catherine, did such a phenomenal job on this one. And it is such a waving flag. This is not a Captain Kirk character, no matter what he did in Infection. This is a character who is capable of having a complex and lasting relationship with one other person. I think that this grounds the Sinclair character really well. And I thought uh, Catherine's far more interesting than um, Carolyn. Very much agreed. Erica, yeah, time just, for our check-in. I'm sitting here. I actually had to cover my mouth uh, and laugh uh, when you were saying that you thought that Sinclair did it, uh, was was good in this. Because actually, I have in my notes, I like Catherine, but there's no chemistry. I really just really? did not buy. Yes, I did not. I like her. Um, I felt like she was maybe not 100% where I wanted her to be as far as the performance. But I just mm -hmm. thought that was because I, I didn't see any, any real sparks in between them. It just, he still, to me, seems very wooden and, and unbelievable and I once again I really like the story I like the idea of this captain like you said you being capable of of, of tr maybe true love of having a monogamous relationship and actual passion with somebody that he's willing to carry forward I like that so on the one hand you've got the performances that I just could not get behind but then on the other hand you've got this great story that I like but unfortunately, that particular B-plot was then dragged down for me by the really clunky dialogue. There were some good moments, but there was so much of the back and forth between them that it just it made my skin crawl. The the uh, it was it was the same thing we ran into in the gathering with these exposition dumps and and people talking the way they don't talk in real life. This is what happens to us every three years. Nobody says that. That's it. It just seemed a little bit a little bit clunky. And then at the very end, I rolled my eyes so hard that my head literally rocked back on my neck uh, when she says, "Don't touch me unless you mean it." I just I, I wanted to get up and leave the room. That was that was so bad. Yeah. So this one doesn't work for me. Sorry. 
<laughs> I'm just, yeah, because for me, it works overall very, very well. I'm, I, I grant some of the bits of exposition that get jammed in there. But by and large, I thought, you know, the back and forth that they had at the restaurant when she comes to celebrate, you know, find her big find um, on the on the planet, that that felt like I, a, a real couple mm-hmm. to me. So. Yes, and that was actually one of the up points. I, I did like the, the the quicker and snappier the dialogue was between the two of them. Mm-hmm. The tighter that was, the more I liked it. And that was okay. that was a scene that I liked. But the who says, who says I got over you and you got over me, that whole speech was just overwritten and so florid that it kind of canceled out any of the neat stuff mm-hmm. that had happened between them before. There's something about JMS's writing. I mean, for the most part, for this episode, and I think this uh, alludes to uh, what Shannon and uh, Bed on our uh, forums mentioned earlier about this being the first episode that JMS had written after he'd seen the actors at work. For the most part, the dialogue in this episode really, really flows, really, really kicks. The characters come alive. Um, mm-hmm. The Jakar and Natath uh, interplay, for example, is just sparkling. And Dylan and Lanier. Yeah. Uh, um, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I agree with you that the scene in the restaurant works really well, even when there's no dialogue. When Sinclair says, no, it was you last time. And she says, no, it wasn't. And he just looks at her and he just mm-hmm. tilts his head at her. And I thought that I thought that was perfect. Um, A lot of their body language worked for me. And mm-hmm. maybe that's what helped for me to carry any clunkier bits of dialogue. It just seemed like body language wise, they were really in tune with um, what the characters ought to do. Yeah. But I do take your point, Erica, that when we do get to that scene in Sinclair's quarters, that's when we go from naturalistic dialogue to a bad love letter. I was going to say forced one, maybe I I was going to say stage dialogue. I wasn't going to go for bad love letter just yet, but that is another aspect of JMS's writing, which works in some circumstances and doesn't for another, is that he'll go into stage soliloquies. And I think that that's what happened in that scene. And it didn't work for me as well as the restaurant scene, but it still did work for me. I think this is a believable couple, and I... And it helps that we learn more about... Catherine on her own. Carolyn Sykes, we pretty much never saw, unless she was with Sinclair, um, other than that one scene with Delenn. Here we get to see that Catherine Sakai is a successful business person. She's an explorer. She uh, She's a miner. She goes and looks for resources for companies. So I think that helps, too, to sort of establish that she she is her own person as well as his love interest. Yeah, and I quite like her as as her own person. I just I I think she was she sparkles. She really does on her own. It's, yeah, I still, yeah, it's the love part that didn't do it for me. Okay. Just like Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe I'm just I'm just a grumpy old curmudgeon <laughs> with no love in my heart. Yeah, I could I could <laughs> tell that about you when I was at your wedding. <laughs> I'm busted. <laughs> Okay. Um, Well, how about our last thread of this story? The A plot. Yeah, the the A plot. Yes, Jakar and Natoth and daggers and backs and all that good stuff. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm (laughs) loving this app. Oh, wait. Ah, damn it. I I had another verse there and I lost it. Um, (laughs) Okay. 
I'll think of it. You guys go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I love that. I love that while he's he's singing that, that uh, the hooray for for whoever addressed that set because you know he's cooking this giant like it looks like a pig's head and there are live it looks like crayfish scuttling around. At one point yes. he turns to one and sets it down and says, "You stay there." I just which was an ad lib apparently. Yeah, I, I totally believe it because I was giggling nonstop through that entire scene and I just I, bravo hats off. Hooray. Yes, he, he, yeah. He, yeah, Katsulis apparently ad-libbed that bit because the crayfish just weren't staying on the plate from the other takes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love this storyline as well. As Chip said, Jakar is finally no longer just the stock villain. We get to see the the man in his quarters enjoying cooking his own meal for himself. We, we get to see his bombastic personality in so many different ways. Um, he gets to be terrified. He gets to be in danger. And um, it all works really well, especially, as you said, with the bringing in of Nata, who is a great character. And she stays a great character for as long as she's on, this, on the show. I cannot say enough good things about her. Natoth is so smart and kick-ass and awesome. And she just, she keeps her cool and she, she goes toe-to-toe with Jakar dialogue-wise. And I really think that she's probably one of the better actors that they have on the show. I mean, she's got a lot of makeup on that. Narn makeup is, mm-hmm. is, is pretty tough to act through, I think. And you've got Catsalus on one side and it's uh, Julie Caitlin Brown. Is that correct? Yes. That's correct. Um, yes. Underneath makeup on the other side. And she's just, I mean, she's fabulous. I'm kind of <laughs> like, I'm just, I just want a fangirl all over her. Because oh, she's totally. this character, pulls off this character who is, I mean, Babylon 5 has a good selection of strong, cool female characters. And I think for me, Natoth is probably my favorite. She is the Even most just from ass- this episode. That's not a spoiler. Yeah, yeah. She she is the most assertive of any of the uh, ambassadorial aides that we get. You get the impression that she could do Jakar's job in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. You don't get that impression from Lanier. You certainly don't get that from Veer uh, at this <laughs> point. It's the... She is... I'm going to use the cliche, the epitome of the strong female character, even though we've got all <laughs> kinds of different kinds of strong female characters in Babylon 5. She's she is just She's utterly competent. She's insanely <laughs> competent. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> she's a lizard, but Me I love too. her. <laughs> <laughs> she's a lizard and I love her. Uh, good, and- good point. Good point. And she and Jakar get to unravel this plot against him, where we also get Tapari, uh, the actor uh, Thomas Kopachi, that people might recognize from the West Wing. He was apparently an assistant secretary of state for many years on that show um, without the makeup. With the makeup. Um, oh, with the makeup, he would have been one hell of a secretary <laughs> of state. <laughs> but he, he presents a, another neat personality among the Narn. So but compared contrasting him to Jakar, he's so very he's able to play the um, the lackey at the beginning. And then once it's revealed that, that he's the assassin and he's got ca- captured Jakar and he's just, you know, he, he's he's here to do his job. He, he takes off his glasses and puts his book away and it's <laughs> time to do his job. Glasses. I love the little bitty glasses. <laughs> Stephen was very, very amused by that. He's like, We're, they, they're not even resting on his ears. What? <laughs> yep, that's great. And then also, that's that's another thing that that scene where 
you not only have Natoth being smart and capable, but she is savvy and and quick and able is able to figure out. She doesn't call in the you know the authorities on the station because she knows that'll get more attention than Jakar wants. So she mm-hmm. comes up with this plan all on her own, not only to figure out where the heck this guy is, but to track him down and come up with a way to free Jakar um, while also getting to kick him a few times and she shows yes. absolutely no remorse. She's smiling and Jakar gets it and he just he respects her for that and it's what she's just so great. I love her. And then at the end, I mean she or when actually it was before that when she went to to grab Tapari um, mm-hmm. and bring him out, she as I was saying before about acting through makeup. She's got that line about, you know, you need to come with me or you will be the late courier Tapari. I mm-hmm. mean, that's that's a pretty cheesy line and she pulls it off with a plum. It's great. Yeah. You will know pain and you will know fear and then you will die. Have a pleasant flight. <laughs> <laughs> and then off they go like chums. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Backslapping, just backslapping. It yep. is perfect. Yes, um, I mean, and, and this is the this is the least sci-fi episode that we've kind of had. Uh, well, I guess Born to the Purple is okay. I'll t- I'll walk that back, but it is not a particularly sci-fi episode. There are no science fictional tropes that are driving the plot. No uh, zappy guns. No, well, we'll go zappy guns and. At, towards the end, we have some, we have we have we a have zappy the, collar, which looks, yeah, that's looks nice, but that's not a big plot point, mm-hmm. right? It is a dramedy. It is a dramedy uh, because mm-hmm. one of the things that I love about this episode is it it feels almost like watching the Avengers when you get Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and Mark Ruffalo, and you know this is just a lark. It's a big stupid blockbuster movie where everybody's in costumes and they have the opportunity to just act their butts off anyway, just to have fun. And that's what I get from Jakar and Natoth and Tapari. They are just relishing the opportunity. They're having fun. They're having fun under that makeup. And the episode is not so serious that we can't have fun along with them. You know, I agree. I think we even see a little bit of that fun on the Mimbari side. I mean, their their ceremony is definitely the most sedate of all of them. But when we meet Lanier for the first time, uh, Delenn's attache, um, yes. you get him just being like this wide-eyed little kid staring around him and Delenn being clearly amused by that. And, you know, you need to look at me or he'll be forever bumping into things. Uh, yeah, we- so I, I think that that infectious sense of fun is really uh, throughout the entire cast in this story. Yeah, she gets to be wry and humorous just for the fun of it whereas in the gathering when she would say a line like that there was a purpose underneath and and she finally gets to just have a have a little fun there was a description again you know we talked about ad-libbing a bit before and jms generally you know put his foot down against it but apparently every time they did the uh take where she would ask him now tell me of home i've been away too long apparently bill moomy would make a funny crack like every single time uh, that, of course, got edited out, but something like, well, we've got a Pizza Hut now. You know, th- things like, you know, just really oddball, wackadoodle stuff. Beatlemania. It's back. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's great. Bill Moomy's introduction, and he does a great job, had not been seen by many people or not been known for much other than Lost in Space. Um, and the Twilight Zone episode and, and, and movie. Yep. He has a great entrance here. Mira Furlan as Delenn gets to do something that she hasn't had the chance to do in the show so far, uh, which is, if not maternal, 
she is very congenial and very patient mm-hmm. with this little initiate. Um, and uh, she she comes across great. Everybody. Is there anybody other than Sinclair? Is there <laughs> anybody who does not turn in a good performance in this episode? I think it's an actor's showcase. I think you're right. And honestly, if we're going to say like of of the Michael O'Hare performances, this is this is near the top, I would say for me. I still I'm not 100 percent buying it, but of his stuff, this is this is some of the best. And maybe that's just because it's surrounded by so much good stuff. It makes me want to like it. I don't know. Okay. One more thing I wanted to throw out before we start edging towards spoiler territory. This is a quote from JMS, uh, I believe taken from the Lurker's Guide, if I remember correctly, uh, where he points out that you're seeing why this episode, much as it's a favorite, couldn't be shown any sooner. There has to be some familiarity with the characters for this to be the most effective. Do you guys agree or disagree? We talked about this being a good jumping on point for people. What do you think? Oh, that's a... That's a tough question. And honestly, it's it's hard for me to know the answer since I find myself, since I'm coming at this from the other side, having seen everything before, uh, I don't even know if I'm <laughs> looking at these characters in any of the earlier episodes as, as clearly and freshly as I should be. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't know that I can even answer the question. Okay. Chip, help. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think think jms is right here i would have liked to have seen more character stuff like this in the gathering perhaps and i think that some of this stuff could have been folded in there but this is it's just a character piece you know you have bottle shows where all the action happens in one set on some shows to save some money you have character-driven stories that are just about characters that aren't really about advancing the plot of the series to any great extent. And that's what this is. This is a break. This is a, this is a pause between the second course and the third course, you know? And I think, I think you're right. I don't think it could have come any earlier. I, I tend to agree. This, you, you said meals. I was thinking of climbing a set of stairs and like this is the landing where you, you know, take a moment, pause, look where you are before you start the next set of stairs. So I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. And, and you couldn't have gotten away perhaps with all of the comedy and drama of Jakar without getting a few episodes of him being the heavy in first. Mm-hmm. And I'd like, and, yeah. and I just so like that. All of a sudden, we see Jakar as a much more well-rounded character. Agreed. Yeah, I'm now trying to s- sort of think of these characters if this was my first introduction to them. And I'm thinking of, of Londo. You know, we had him in Born to the Purple, which for me was the point where he really became a three-dimensional character. And if you didn't have that and you just had him passing out on a table and being silly, I, I think he would sort of maybe be back to the same sort of buffoonish character that we kind of thought he was going to be in The Gathering or Midnight on the Firing Line. And I feel like, yes, it's still a decent jumping on point because you get little bits and pieces of all the characters, but you, you miss a little bit of of why it's so fun here. I don't think it would be as fun if, you know, it's like it's like when it's sunny all the time, it's not that exciting when it's sunny. Here in Edmonton, you know, when it's when it's 70 degrees out and, and nice, like, people get really, really excited. Whereas in, in L.A., it's, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. Okay. You know, it's I'll make a bad analogy here, but it's like if you handed the Doctor Who episode Love and Monsters to a complete newbie. Oh, 
Wow. I mean, I mean, this is not an episode. This is not an episode that's about Babylon Five. This is an episode that is about Babylon 5's characters. And I think you got to have a little bit of Babylon 5 under your belt before you um, just wallow in character development. Okay. So, yeah. So, if you are uh, joining us for the first time, and this is the first Babylon 5 story you watched, uh, you've done it wrong. Sorry. You know, and, and, you know, we've been talking it up. Shannon and I, at least, have been on Twitter talking about how this is a great jumping on point. And I think... Uh, I think we have just been convinced that it we were wrong. <laughs> it's, it's not the worst jumping on point, but I, I, if anybody did jump on with this one, I do encourage you to go back and watch the earlier episodes if you can. Yes, that's true. Um, I do, I do think this makes a decent jumping on point um, as we get the introduction of the second sort of the second tier of characters, because this is pretty much the point where now everybody's on stage and JMS gets to start really playing with the pieces. Uh, one other note to uh, include is that this particular episode won an Emmy Award, the first Emmy Award for the show for its makeup design. So, Ooh. yeah, yay Narns. Well deserved. Mm-hmm. Yes. So as we head towards our jump gate, um, this is the time for people who are watching this show for the first time around. This is the time that you should stop and put the episode away until you have finished. And then if you want, you can come back and listen some more. Uh, Your homework for next time is the episode Mind War, which will uh, lead us back to Talia Winters and the telepath question. And you are reminded that you can find us at b5audioguide.com. We are also on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. Thank you to everyone who has followed us and uh, started uh, joining us for the ride. We greatly appreciate it. And I will meet you all on the other side of the jump gate. And we're back. This episode, I'm not sure that there's a huge amount of stuff in the big story arc. As we've said, it's um, strongly a character piece. But I think there's some things to chew on, possibly. One amusing thing for those who were paying attention at the Centauri banquet, that statue of Lee, the goddess of passion, we will find out several episodes down the line, I think the episode is The Quality of Mercy, that that statue's a hermaphrodite because there's the female characteristics and yet she's got the male Centauri crest and these things sticking out of her side that turn out to be um, <laughs> the male members. Yes, plural and yeah. Yeah, it w- we'll actually see that very statue just to drive the point <laughs> home. <laughs> That's right. I also quite like that he just, he kissed that statue right on the rump. Oh, yes. That just made me laugh. <laughs> it got us a passion. Smackaroo. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, like, I like that he did that yeah. just before he became one with his inner self. <laughs> and he did that right in front of uh, Delin. Delin must have been just so, so uncomfortable during this whole Scandalized. thing. Scandalized. And he was making it worse. <laughs> Yeah, but um, something that uh, struck me uh, watching this and thinking about it in the terms of, of a writer setting things up, I got the feeling that you could create some parallels between the religions and 
the characteristics or the story arcs of the races. The Centauri Festival is based on them surviving this war with another race on their planet, and they eventually wipe them out and grow their empire to the whole planet. And well, that's kind of what they do when they get out into space. Apparently, they, you know, go and conquer worlds. And then during the Shadow War, they wind up being a pivotal race going and conquering and, you know, attacking the Narn again and nearly killing their planet. Um, this celebration of we survived is just as much we beat you. And, and that's, um, yeah. that's a lot of the Centauri for the longest time. The Mimbari, pretty much, they introduce us to Valen. They introduce Valen to himself because there's Sinclair sitting right there <laughs> listening as Delenn, you know, makes this proclamation that we follow the one. And it also struck me that the Mimbari religion of all the religions we see struck me a bit as kind of the most fanatical in a way. You know, we will follow you into death. We will follow you into anything. And that's kind of what they do for the first part of the Shadow War. They follow the Vorlons blindly, believing that the Vorlons are going to show them the way. Yeah, and even in the prior Shadow mm -hmm. War, when when they show up, when Valen shows up with uh, two Vorlons right. on either side and the Mimbari just, you know, they, yeah, it is a very fanatical, it is a culture that is inclined toward fanaticism. Yeah. Um, we unfortunately don't get any glimpses of the Narn, um, speaking of monolithic versus uh, poly, polytheic's not the right word, Um the, the Narn Sounds apparently to me. Well, the, the Narn have competing religious beliefs. We find out that there's different philosophers or different prophets. There's um, Jakar follows Jaquan. There's apparently Jalan, and there's others. It struck me as kind of like Moses versus Jesus versus Muhammad. That you know that they may all sort of follow something of the same general systems, but they've all branched out. Uh, we won't get to see this until by any means necessary at the earliest, though. Jakar and Natath actually have pretty strong differences of opinion on that subject, mm -hmm. uh, where he, in his will, when he's getting ready to kill Londo, he uh, offers his book of Jaquan to Natath in hopes that she may find <laughs> wisdom. Right. And, you know, if you take it far enough, Jakar inadvertently becomes a sort of religious uh, figure himself in his own book that he, he writes. Yeah. <laughs> then allow us to be published simply by his his own absence so uh kind of gives an another interesting little look at the the religious habits of the narn if if somebody who is alive becomes can become basically a, a prophet just based the on next the, prophet. the quality yeah. of his writing mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah um, and then I think that little tag with uh the earth showing all the different representations mirrors sort of that the humans become the joker in the pack that they because they were not involved in the last shadow war they don't have any of these preconceptions that all the other races have they're able to think outside the box and uh come up with things that um help them win well we can even take that a step further um f further irritating erica perhaps <laughs> don't uh, irritate but, the erica um <laughs> I, I i i'll try not to uh but uh the whole resolution to the shadow war is about the different cultures of the galaxy finally saying, we've had enough. We're not going to be beholden to the Vorlons or the Shadows. We're adults now. We'll, we'll make our own way. We'll make our own communities. So I think that that is really 
meant to sort of illustrate that as well, uh, that humans build communities out of diversity. That's what uh, Delenn keeps pontificating about the the, uh, the glories of the human race uh, and Earth culture. And I, I think that that's meant to reflect that as well. Mm-hmm. On, a, on a slightly different uh different forward-looking tack. I was thinking about Jakar a moment ago. Uh, another thing I noticed is that uh, when Jakar is being tortured, he doesn't cry out. And that, of course, made right. me jump forward yeah. in my head to right. another important time when Jakar does not cry out until he absolutely has to. So it's like, ah, planting a seed, laying some foundation yep. here. Nice work. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or, or even if it's not specifically done, if he hasn't plotted that it's far still out, um, character. He, he, he yeah. knows the character. Yes. He knows the character. Yeah, I mean, it very well could be that, that later on he's simply calling back to this, to something that he established previously and thinking, oh, yes, I did this before. And, and either way, uh, it works really well. I like it. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, may I talk for a moment about uh, the Minbari rebirth ceremony and whether somebody you got may. married or not? <laughs> Please do. As we've talked about a little bit in spoiler space before, um, things went kind of haywire once uh, Michael O'Hare's mental health issues took a toll and pretty much ensured that he was only going to do the first full season. Because this was indeed intended to be a wedding ceremony of a sort. At the end of the series, Sinclair and Delenn were going to be together, and Catherine Sakai would have been would have been off as doing her traitor thing and have been caught by the shadows and mind wiped um, in reverse order, of course. <laughs> How does this wedding ceremony work for us? How does the Mimbari rebirth ceremony work for us when we look at what it was, I guess, originally intended to be and what it wound up meaning uh, when we JMS decided that, well, no, Sinclair's going to have to be valent. And I've always found it confusing. Uh, so for me, it it didn't really work, uh, given the changes, um, because I just didn't... It seems like so often JMS is very intricate with the way that he... he plays things dialogue wise and you know sometimes it's a little clunky but usually things are in there and they mean something specific so the fact that it is said that you know oh somebody is depending on how seriously they took it somebody got married to me that stood out as a line that meant something and clearly it was supposed to um and then later off, it didn't really turn into anything and pay off simply because they had to change things. So for me, that was always just sort of a weird, confusing sticking point. And I didn't know about the original plans until now. So it makes much more sense. And I'm mm-hmm. able to now I'm sort of able to overlook it. But uh, before I knew what it was leading toward, it just always seemed like a really big, ugly, dangling thread that I could never quite understand. Or I think maybe it was passed off once or twice as a reverse red herring or something like that. It just never read that way to me. Yeah. Right. Because it was too well done. (laughs) Yeah. I I think the ceremony itself still works. Um, The idea of, you know, Delenn essentially, like I said, introducing Valen to himself. You know, this is probably the first time Sinclair has seen or heard more than just in Valen's name from a Mimbari. So the idea of presenting uh, that devotion and that um, that fanaticism to the leader, as again, works on its own. And, you know, without that comment about the wedding ceremony line, it would work seamlessly, which, you know, of course, never happens on a television show that runs more than a couple years. But we also get the amusing bits of the others, you know, uh, Londo sort of looks at it like he doesn't really know what he's doing. 
Ivanova is um, willing to do it. She she seems to be the most open of, of all the characters in, in this episode of, of really learning about what other planets do. And then, of course, Jakar, because Delenn happens to say something about, this is your death, is and Jakar puts fruit down. He's like, uh-uh, not me. <laughs> so, um, so there's other nuances and things to be found in it. That's true. I think that scene is my least favorite out of uh, this episode, simply because... Again, it just comes back to the religion thing and me not being particularly interested in religion in my science fiction. So I enjoyed the the Londo's party because it was a party. But this actually, it felt it felt like church, and my feelings about church made me completely tune out. So I honestly missed a lot of the subtleties from the other characters because I was zoning out just the same way I have done every time I've been forced to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this shows the amazing powers of concentration that Sinclair has because he remembered this ceremony and then he wrote it. Oh, it's probably written down somewhere. Okay. He had it. No, 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 no. He wrote it. He as Valen. But he, wrote he would it. have <laughs> he would have seen in his year on Mimbar, he almost certainly got to read, you know, where it had been written down so that they could uh, present it. Uh, he had time time to memorize He had time to study. Yeah. Yeah, he had okay. time. <laughs> I, he may have even presented it, it himself as, uh, you know, as a head ranger, ranger one at some point <laughs> later on. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, recommended, actually, Babylon 5 didn't do anywhere near as much tie-in merchandise and tie-in fiction as the Star Trek universe did. There were possibly 20, 30 maybe novels and comics and things like that out there. But one of the books was written by... J. Michael Straczynski's then-wife, Catherine Drennan. It's called To Dream in the City of Sorrows. And that is the story. It is considered 100% canon, according to the foreword by JMS, uh, the story of what happened to Sinclair uh, after he left Babylon 5 uh, prior to War Without End. And Catherine is a character in that. And her fate is that she after Sinclair just up and left Babylon 5. Um, she ultimately followed him to Minbar. She became a ranger. And she and Sinclair and Marcus were involved in an incident that sort of leads up to War Without End in which she is lost. That's that's really interesting. I, I have never consumed any of the external media, um, but that makes me interested in, in seeking out that book because I, I think I would like that story. I think I would like to see the interaction between Sinclair and Catherine better in book form than I did on screen. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you certainly probably would. <laughs> you certainly probably would. God. Okay, I think we've been going on at this for a while, and I'm starting to lose my cohesion. Okay. <laughs> Well, and I guess we are about ready to wrap up. Um, as always, we thank you for listening along with us as we continue this journey. Our next episode is Mind War, where we will be joined by a fourth panelist. We get to talk to Andy Anatko of much tech and incomparable fame, who he also happens to be a Babylon 5 fan. So we will have him along for our ride next time. Hooray for special guests. Woo! And that wraps up this episode. This is uh, Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And thank you for listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>